we turn to the book of Jude, just to the left of Revelation. So we're walking through this great book that the Lord's half-brother um, was led by the Holy Spirit to write and has come to us. And so I think we are in week five. Our main focus today will be verse seven, and then we'll spend time in Genesis chapter 19 as well. Let me just remind us of kind of where we've been, why this is so important. So Jude writes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father, and and listen to this phrase, very important, and kept for Jesus Christ. There is a bookend to the book of James with the phrase and the idea that we are kept by God. So we see in verse 1 that we are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus. Go down to verse 24 of Jude. So at the very end, when we'll get there in, in, in some weeks to come, Jude goes back to this idea. and He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. So Jude's audience that he's writing to are a group of believers who have been infiltrated by false teaching in the first century. The church is somewhere around 30 to 35 years now since the Jerusalem church has started. Churches have been established, and over time, Satan has gone after the church. And he, the, the biggest way that he goes after the church is to chip away and try to steal away understanding of the truth. And so just three and a half decades into the existence of the New Testament church, false teachers have come in, and Jude is reminding them that though they are dealing with this, he wants them to know that they are kept that they are secure in who Jesus is. So he tells them in verse 1 that they are kept for Jesus. He concludes it to say, this Jesus that you believe in and who is under attack, and you are under attack, he is able to keep you. So we are completely and absolutely secure in Christ. And so in light of that, we are to live out our faith in the generation in which the Lord has placed us and to live in that generation faithfully. We are not just to sit around and do nothing and wait until we get to heaven. I cannot wait to get in the literal presence of Jesus. What what, what an amazing reality that's going to be. But until we get there, we are tasked to walk faithfully with God and to walk in the truth. And so not only is our faith absolutely secure, according to Jude... But we are also told by him that Scripture is secure. And so in verse 2, Jude says, Listen, I I found it necessary to write to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the Scripture that has come to us, let me just stop there. You can see up on the screen there. We are kept to what? Contend. So we are kept by Jesus, even in the midst of attacks, on his nature, on the truth of the Scripture, And as we are kept in the generation in which we live, we are to contend for the truth of the gospel. So we are, as Christ followers, kept to contend. Why is this so critical? Well, verse 4, Jude tells us why this is so important. For he says, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So history records for us in the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament and through the church age after the Scripture had been put together and the apostles had died out and the church leading up all the way to our time today, we are participating in the great battle for truth. And it has gone on since the Garden of Eden when Satan came and began to manipulate and began to press in against and attack God's word. Said to Eve, did God really say that? Well, God knows this, Eve, that if you have the fruit in the middle of the garden, you'll be like him. And ever since 
Adam and Eve took of the fruit that they were not supposed to do, we have been trying to be our own God. It's our problem. And so we needed God to come and rescue us. And and an image of that in the garden comes where God comes. They are hiding in the bushes. God calls them out. They come out. An innocent animal on that day, possibly just been reading the Old Testament, likely a lamb, was slain and its skin was cut off of it. God covered Adam and Eve, foreshadowing this picture that one must come. An innocent one must come and and die as a substitute and, and the body to be broken and the blood to be shed. And so throughout history from Genesis all the way to today, there's been an attack and, and believers are kept to stand for the truth and to contend for it. And so Jude, writing to this group of people, says, let me give you three examples and I want to remind you of them. And they're just three sentences. The reason they're three sentences is that the audience that's receiving this letter from Jude, they would have known exactly which story Jude was referring to. Most likely is writing to Jewish Christians who would have known these stories. And so the first story that he gives as an example of apostasy of those who turned their back on God was with the 12 spies. And so here the, the Israelites are on the edge of the promised land. They've been delivered from Egypt. 12 spies go in. They spend 40 days in there. They come back out. And of the spies say, too much trouble in the land that God has promised us. There's no way we can go in there and take the land. And so we see an instance of Jewish apostasy. Last week, and it's in verse 6 of Jude, is that we see that there were angels that used to be in the presence of God and face the glory of God and worship Jesus in heaven. And they with Satan rebelled against God. They were cast down and somehow through some kind of demonic oppression um, or possession in Genesis chapter 6, they have sex with women. There are children that are born from that demonic aspect of things. And those angels who did, did this, Peter tells us, Jew tells us, have been locked away in eternal prison in chains in gloomy darkness, and they will never get out of that place. And so, so we've seen a Jewish apostasy. We've seen angels apostasy. And now we're going to see an instance of Gentile apostasy with the city, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The reason these three stories are important and so critical for our understanding and why they need studying is this. Hear this. If you're taking notes, these are things you ought to write down. They are a warning to us of the dangers of what is lost in apostasy when there's a turning away from the truth and the gospel. So it's a warning to us of the dangers in regard to that. Secondly, they are words of certainty concerning how God is going to deal with apostasy. He brings judgment upon it. Listen to these words that the writer to the Hebrew Christians put together. Hebrews 10, 29 through 31. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For you know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then Hebrews 10.31 says this, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So there is a warning about apostasy in the scripture. Apostasy, a willful turning away from the truth. When you've been in the midst of the truth, once gave affirmation to the truth, sang about the truth, went on mission trips about the truth, to now turn the back and to walk away from that truth. The scripture calls that apostasy. So the Bible is going to now give us this example um, different than the Jewish one, different from the angels, although the angels in this one are going to be similar. So I want you to ask you now, 
We're going to read kind of the backdrop of this and we'll come back to it. Go to Genesis chapter 13, please. And so I want to read through the original instance before we get into what Jude has to say to us. about the apostasy that he writes about in Jude 7. So we know Abraham and Lot, um, Abram in Genesis 12 has been told that he's going to be the father of many nations. And though he is old at that time, 75, and he doesn't have any kids, this promise is made to him. And so Abram and Lot are together and they have traveled and they are down in the southern part of what we know of ancient Israel and they are going to divide. So in Genesis 13, look with me in verse 8. So then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? So separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Let me just stop there just for a second. We're going to come back to that theme in a moment. Note that. So when they look out and they looked at this area that Lot's going to choose, it resembled what the Garden of Eden would have looked like. This is a beautiful, beautiful place. And so Lot looks out and he sees that. He sees he's got the choice to be there. And so he sees that there's this place that he could go and live and he could settle his family and his livestock and all of that. And it would be very similar to the Garden of Eden. So let me read 10 again. So when Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the Garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Now this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. This is an important verse. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So you come to Genesis chapter 18. We're not going to read anything in there, but let me just remind you of the story. So Abraham is in Canaan. He's there working. Um, He looks in the distance one day. He's at a place called Mamre, M-A-M-R-E, and he sees three angels come, and he hosts them. Um, This is where he also learns that a year from this time that the angels had visited him, that Sarah will be pregnant in a year from now. She laughs about that and then says, well, I didn't really laugh, and yeah, you did. And, And so there's a conversation about that. And this is where Abraham learns of the fate of what the angels are going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he begins to plead for Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember, he starts with a large number and says, if there's this many righteous people there, will you not destroy the city? And they say, if there's that many righteous people, we will not do it. He gets all the way down to the place where Lot says, if there are ten righteous people in the city, will you not destroy Sodom? And that he is told, um, okay, won't destroy Sodom if there are ten. And tragedy among tragedies, you couldn't find ten people in Sodom that were righteous. He kept lowering the bar. If we could find this many, could find this many, could find this many, and they couldn't find that many. Can you imagine a city with such a low bar that it cannot produce ten righteous people that have a heart for God and a vision of God? So look with me in now Genesis 19. So the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Lot now has, didn't just pitch his tent near it, but he's now living in the city. And verse 1 says, And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we're going to spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. And so there are angels that have come to the city. Um, What we learn about angels, just briefly here, 
is they can take on a physical form where they can talk and they can walk and they can eat literal food. And they can also have the power to blind people, which we will see in a moment as well. So look at verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, listen to the description here, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So you've got every man in the city, young to old, who have been practicing something and have seen that wickedness is the way, and they've seen these two angels come in that they don't know are angels but men, and so they have come to Lot's house who is living in the city now, and they have surrounded it. Look at verse 5. And the men of the city, every one of them outside, called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So let me just remind us what's happening here. So every man of the city came and surrounded the house. They do not know that the two men are angels. The word no has always been in the Hebrew a common phrase meaning sexual relations. So today, to soften this story, it is explained differently than the thousands and thousands of years of understanding of this text and what the Hebrew originally meant and how they used that to say this. They just gathered around the house, and you need to trust me on this. Um, I've been out there in Internet land looking what young pastors are teaching about this issue. And this is what they're saying now pretty dominantly as they're softening this. They have gathered around to be friendly. And they were curious about those who have come to the city. Peter affirms that Lot knew exactly what was about to happen. Lot knew. So Peter writes in 2 Peter 2 verse 7, he said, And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as... That righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. He knew why they had come, and it was clear to him. So now look at verse 8. This was, let me just stop there for a second. Look up here for a second. I've always wrestled with, I, I absolutely trust the Holy Spirit writing of Scripture but 2 Peter 4, 7 is difficult to, to understand when Lot is called righteous. He, he clearly recognizes that what's about to happen and take place is unholy, it is unrighteous. But what he does now is just unfathomable for a father. So again, remember last week where I talked about sometimes we come to certain passages and we, we might turn our head and go, that's hard to really fully understand everything that's there. And yet it's there, and we must trust that it's Scripture, and so we lean into it. So Peter calls Lot righteous, and he probably was obviously righteous in the midst of the wickedness of Sodom. But it's hard to see a lot of righteousness with Lot, because look what he does in verse 8. Behold, men, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my, of my roof. Here Lot reveals <clears throat> by his words that in that moment, obviously his heart and mind are not filled with righteousness. And that he has a lack of knowledge about the power of angels. They didn't need Lot to rescue them. They could handle things on their own. They are God's holy righteous angels and sinfully Lot offers his two virgin daughters to the men of the city to rape them and do whatever they wanted to do look at verse 9 but the men of the city said stand back Lot and they said to one another this fellow came to sojourn and now he has become the judge And now we will deal worse with you than them. And then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. 
But the men, the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Verse 11. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. So they attack Lot, saying this, you've come to live in here, you're not even one of us. And now you're sojourning, just kind of here, and now you're standing in judgment of us and what, in regard to what we want to do and what you see all the time in the city. You want to stand in judgment of us. They're like, who are you to judge the practices that we have done, are doing, and want to do? Did you note verse 11? The angels strike the men blind. And instead of finding their way back home, they continue to grope and try to find the door to get inside the door to do what they want to do with the men in a perverse way. This is what sin will do in regard to the area of sexuality when people so get caught up in the darkness and the lostness of it. Today, things are out of control, this passion with no regard for what is human, what is morally right, what is true, what is honorable. And just as we see today, there is a blatant and out of control in the streets immorality. In our streets, we have pride parades. In our cities, we have drag queen story hour at city libraries. We have teachers and adults all over this country today giving advice to kids about gender preferences and hiding it from their families and being protected in doing that by some school districts. We have taken on some of the streetness that was in Sodom all those thousands of years ago. And it is happening much more lately in our nation. Look at verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. This is the angels, for we are about to destroy the place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Judgment, Judgment was coming, and so verse 12 The angels tell this to Lot, and the angel's advice for Lot is, don't hang around, get out of here, and get out of here as quick as you can. Verse 15, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. There's another indication of the craziness of Lot, but he lingered. I'm telling you, if two angels show up this morning and tell us to get out of town, we better get out of town and not delay. Lot just lingers. And sadly today in some churches, there's a lot of lingering in regard to this area with false teaching and allowing of a lot of things. So as morning died, the angels urged, Lot, take up your wife and your two daughters. Who are here, lest you be swept, swept away in the punishment of the city. 16, but he lingered. So the men seized him. This is the angels again, and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside of the city. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Listen to the instructions. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Get to the hills, escape to them, lest you be swept away. 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. And she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went out early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley. 
And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land, land and went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst and overthrew when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Lot would have known the story of God's working in Abraham's life. Sodom and Gomorrah would have known that probably as well. Word gets around in those generations about someone and the promise that's there and the things that were connected to Abraham. Sodom and Gomorrah would have known about Abraham's God. Sodom and Gomorrah also would have, also would have known just by the very conscience that God places in people about what's right. You can read about that in Romans 1. Those in Sodom would have rejected both of those, and I think also that there must have been some kind of testimony that Lot would have been would have talked about somehow. They recognized Lot was not a part of them. He was a sojourner. He wasn't there. And so they became apostate in their rejection of what they would have known about Abraham's God, about maybe what Lot had said, about what God had placed in every human in regard to um, just a conscience about what is right, and yet they rejected all of that. And they turned to an apostasy that was grave, that was sexual in nature. And so what I would like to ask you to do now is to go now back to Jude. And, and what we're going to do is I'm just going um, to walk through this short sentence verse in Jude 7. And I just want to show you the Greek words. So that you can see that I'm not adding in any, into anything I'm not like, ooh, this sickens me, and so I've got some personal things I want to add into this. We just, what we need to see is what the Word of God says, right? And to just take what the Word of God says about this and to embrace what is there. And so before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and it became a wasteland, we read a while ago that it would have been a vacation spot on the southeast side of the Jordan Valley. This was an incredibly, must have been an incredibly beautiful place. If it was similar, God leading Moses to write Genesis, letting them know this section of Israel used to be like the Garden of Eden. Well watered, an incredible place, and now it is not like that. And all of it communicates the judgment of God. And so I want to show you what it looks like and you can see up on the screen so you can kind of get an idea of what this looks like. So Aaron, if you would, put that first picture up there. This is a map. Uh, sorry, I, somebody, if somebody's an entrepreneur, can I tell you a business you could start? Making really good Bible maps that you can download for the internet for sermons. I could not, I, I, hour and a half I looked for a good map. This is the best one I could find. But you can see the two red places, that's where Sodom and Gomorrah was. Um, and so that's where they were located, not in the lake. That's, see, see, that's bad. They're in the lake. So somebody needs to make, make a good map, okay? Anyway, so that's a problem. You can go up. You can see Jerusalem up there above Jebusites. You can see down from Bethlehem is Mamre. That's where Abraham was when all this was happening and taking place. And so that's kind of the location. Yeah, Aaron, go to the next slide. This is what it looks like today. Does that look like the Garden of Eden to you? Look at the next one. That's salt that's been around for thousands and thousands of years. Kind of petrified, kind of a rock now. Next one. That one to the left there, I don't know if it's true. You know how people are. They say that's Lot's wife. That's what they call it, Lot's wife. There's no way to, to prove that, but... Um, that's what this place looks like. Now, before we begin to walk through the text, I want you to hear this. This is what God did in regard to this area, in regard to the sexual sin that was happening and taking place. So we need to feel the weight of that, that God is pretty serious about this from way back when all the way until Today. To the eye of the flesh, the valley of, the so of Sodom and Gomorrah would have been a logical choice, great land and water, and that's what 
Lot chose. Let me give you a reminder here. Economic security should not dominate all of our decisions. We Americans, we do that. Make about just all of our decisions based on whether this is going to financially better us rather than making sure that all of our decisions are grounded in making sure that our faith maintains strength. Now, Lot probably thought to himself, yeah, I know the men of Sodom are wicked, but I can handle it. You ever said that before? I can begin to get close to the line of sin, and I can handle it the closer I get because I'm strong. When every teaching, Old Testament and New Testament says, run away from the line, don't draw near to it. And yet Lot did this, and the end result of Lot's life did not show any holiness, but more similarity to the ways of Sodom and Gomorrah. A couple other things before we begin to look um, in the text here. Leviticus 18 is the law that God gave to the Jewish people when they came out of Egypt that they were to live by. Leviticus 18 gives us multiple sexual laws that God gave the people to follow that would protect them and make them unique and different than all the other lands around them. So the question comes is this, why does God mention all of these strange kind of sexual behaviors and gave specific laws against them to his covenant people? This probably shouldn't shock us. He had to give these laws because people were going to do what? They were going to do those things. And so he had to define what they couldn't do in, in some unique counsel in regard to this. So God gave them because people would do them and they are destructive and they are depraved. And sadly today, many people are walking down that path just to find pleasure. God has a fuel for the sexual relationship. Sex is God's idea. He's the inventor of it. This is not man's idea. And the fuel that God has given is that it would, sex would happen between a man and a woman who are married. Not a man and a woman who aren't married, but a man and a woman who are married. And anything outside of that is outside of the teaching and the revelation of Scripture. And so God calls us to holiness and purity. Listen, for our good and for our joy. Now, as we begin to walk through Jude 7... It'll either say, if you have ESV, it'll say unnatural desire. Um, If you have, I think I looked at them yesterday, if you have a King James Version and you're into Shakespeare, um, yours will say strange flesh. If you have the NASB, it will say strange flesh. If you have the NIV, it will say the word perversion. The better definition in regard to the Greek is strange flesh. So look with me now in Jude 7. I've got four points here in regard to just looking at the Greek so that you and I can understand how do we understand what was the sin going on in Sodom and Gomorrah and particularly Sodom and the other cities of the valley and what was going on that Jude was dealing with as well. So we're just going to break these up in phrases. Y'all ready? Greek. Y'all ready for Greek? We're going to have Greek up on the screen for you. So the phrase just as is an adverb that means in the same manner as or after the fashion as or just as. This is a reference back to Jude 6 in the sexual perversion that was connected to the angels before they were locked away in gloomy darkness and eternal chains. They had possessed men, had sexual relations with women, and had children that were born from this. So there, the, so there, there's the only way that you can understand this just as is to say this, that you understand verse 7 by looking at back at verse 6 and understanding that 6 and 7 were the same type of sin. It was sexual in nature. So both for the angels and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were both guilty of a reprehensible lusting after that which was forbidden for them to desire that which was Not natural, it was unnatural, it was strange flesh. 
So the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, I don't believe was just homosexuality. I believe it includes, and we'll see here in a moment, um, also perverted heterosexual kinds of sin that were happening and taking place, but there was a particularity in regard to homosexuality. So he says, just as, Jude writes, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I want to put this on the internal private page last night, but it's worth repeating uh, today. No two cities in the Bible have a longer breadth of being referred to Genesis 13, first reference to these cities, Sodom is mentioned in Revelation chapter 11. So the longest mention of cities on the earth from Genesis 13 to Revelation 11 is Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom is used more than Gomorrah is, but both of them are mentioned multiple, multiple times. We don't learn about Jerusalem. It's called Salem. We don't learn about it until Genesis chapter 14. This story of Sodom and Gomorrah is one of the worst stories in all of history. The purpose of the city until it's wiping out was to to live in iniquity. And everything about it was repulsive in every kind of way. These two cities are mentioned together side by side as an example of God's judgment, just particularly about God's judgment 20 times in the Bible. And so it indicates we ought to take note of what is happening and taking place there. Sodom is mentioned 49 times in total in the Old Testament and New Testament, and Gomorrah is mentioned 23 times in both Testaments. The destruction of both of them is referred to 18 times in Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Amos, and Zephaniah. Jesus refers to the city six times. Paul once in Romans, it's once by Peter, and here in Jude, and then again in the book of Revelation. Listen to this. The frequency of their names from Genesis 13 all the way to Revelation 11 should be noted by us that we should read that and look at that, that this is God's most drastic display of judgment of those who apostatize themselves against who God is. We are not to give a passing glance to the story. And considering all these references and span of time that they are referenced to in the scripture, it demands every Christian of every age to take note of the sin of these cities. We are not to downplay this. We are not to soften this. We are not to try to, because we're so wise in 2023, to reword this. We are to see it, as it is revealed in the original text and and to embrace what's there. Their demise took around 450 years after the flood and their names are still used today when you talk about cities connected to immorality. So the first thing that I wanted us to see there is that we need to consider this. Now, you know this to be true. There were five cities in that valley All of them, God originally was going to destroy all five cities. One is saved because Lot says to the angels, "Um, I don't want to flee to the hills because then I'll have to live in a cave. Lot had grown very comfortable in Sodom. I don't have to go and live with my daughters up in the caves, so can I flee to Zoar? And they let him do that. And so the four cities um, are mentioned there. Zoar was going to be destroyed. It ends up not being destroyed destroyed that's there. But watch this. Sodom and Gomorrah, the larger cities, had influence upon the other cities. This is still the case today. New York and Los Angeles are the most influential cities in the United States of America. The sin that happens there, the affirmation that happens in both of those, the things that they create, they produce, that are made, that are thought of, that are put on video screens, that are put on internet places to go to of deep perversion, they have trickled down to where in small towns today, you would go, how in the world did that that started in New York or Los Angeles, how is it dominant in this small place? Even in the South, where things are supposedly conservative, that there's immorality that is there. 
And this is the case. I, I, I'm not shocked by it, but you probably have noticed it, the amount of commercials now that have characters in the commercial of same sex. Just everywhere. We will see it next Sunday at the Super Bowl. I guarantee you, you'll see a commercial that will give affirmation to that. I get to watching shows on Hulu that I've done a little bit of research on thinking, oh, this is okay. And into season three, I have to stop watching because it's just going to be a continual affirmation of same-sex relationship. This is everywhere in the West. And it's deeply pervasive here and it's deeply growing. And so we need to watch for even the cities, the powerful cities, what is coming out after them. All right, look at the second part of verse Verse 7, which likewise, so just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and, this is an important word, and naming two different things. You've got one sexual immorality and another aspect, pursuing strange flesh or pursuing unnatural desire. So let's look at these. We'll have this up on the screen. This word likewise means like or resembling. It means to do something just like it. So again, this is referring back to, to Jude 6, which was something sexual in nature in regard to the angels. So in the same way of resembling what we saw in verse 6, likewise, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, it says here, they indulged in. Now you can see upon the screen the meaning of this. This word indulged in, it means they indulged in sexual morality. It's a Greek word called ek. And it means to give oneself up completely into immorality. This word ek kind of gives some strength to it. Porneo, what word do we get from porneo? Do you know? Pornography, that's where we get that there. So this is the idea. And so, so Jude is saying this. The people living in the cities, and Jude would have known this, says this is what they did. They gave themselves up completely in the immorality, to something, or in for something. Now again, I believe that based on what we see in verse 7 there, they indulged in sexual immorality. I believe that's a reference, in my opinion, about perverted heterosexual sex or just immoral heterosexual sex. And then when it says, and pursuit unnatural desire, is clearly a, a reference to, we'll see in a moment, clearly to the sin of same-sex relationships. So Jude writes, which likewise the surrounding cities, they did the same thing and they gave themselves up in the immorality, sexual immorality. This, this phrase, um, I don't know if we have this up there. Can you put the next one up there, Aaron? Um, no, we'll look at the next one here in just a second. Um, but it's this idea of gluttony. They it says the, the Greek says they... They gluts themselves, which means this. They, their appetite was so strong, just like the men who were blind a while ago and they kept trying to reach the door to get inside. Their appetite was so strong. So these men are giving themselves in every way to something of the spirit of lustful immorality. And I tell you, anytime we give ourselves over and indulge in immorality for a long period of time, we're at the same time giving ourselves up to the judgment of God. Sin will never bring life, only a death. You see, God has ordered the world in that way. It can never bring life. Listen to this. This is another aspect. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've been, again, watching videos and preaching out there in evangelical land, I guess if you call it that, about how are people preaching about this. Ezekiel speaks about Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and this is where we're actually just Sodom. And this is what Ezekiel writes in chapter 16, 49. Listen to this. He says, this is in addition to the sexual sins. This was other sins that were found in Sodom. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. And then in Ezekiel 16, 50 says, they were haughty, which I believe points back to verse 49 that says this. They were rich. It was comfortable. They didn't care about anybody. They just had everything that they need. They were doing whatever they wanted to do. And then it says this 
in verse 50. They were haughty, I believe, clearly referring back to their pride in verse 49. And it says this, they were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Incidentally, this is why today I just want to show you what the Greek says. The word here, abomination, that connected um, in Ezekiel chapter 16, they did an abomination before me, is the exact same word in Leviticus 18.22 that gives the prohibition against men lying with men and women lying with men. So this is a clear reference, and this is what, you, this is what I found out there being preached today. They are softening Ezekiel chapter 16, preachers are, to say that the sin of Sodom was that they were prideful people, which obviously they were, but it was more than just that. Their pride lit, lent itself to a deep, deep immorality. So watch this. Sodom and the surrounding cities likewise indulged in, gave themselves up to a sexual immorality, a prideful immorality, and then it says, and they pursued unnatural desire which I believe is a clear reference here based on Ezekiel 16.50 and Leviticus 18.22 that this can only be read according to the Hebrew and the Greek as homosexuality. And it says they pursued it. This word pursued is apokromai, and it means to turn away or depart from a state of purity and to move into a state of strange flesh. And you look at our culture today, so strong is this lobby in our country that in a short period of time, their rigorous pursuit to make normal what is unnatural has tremendously come to the forefront in so many areas where it has strong acceptance. Now, I want you to think about that. What God rained down fire upon, we are putting in city libraries today and giving affirmation to it. We are making laws with those yahoos up in Washington passing things. Both parties, both parties not taking a stand for righteousness. So they pursued, went after unnatural desire. This word means literally to go after not what is natural, but what is unnatural. And we are in this country today rushing to normalize what God has fully destroyed. We could go today, we could get on a plane, we could fly over to, to, to that part in Jordan today, and we could see over there what God has done. It has lasted for thousands of years. He has given a statement about how he feels about this. And the trouble today is the church is softening its stance on this. And I guarantee if your kids um, are on ball teams or um, wherever they are, they are hearing about this. And this phenomenon is powerful and it's scary and it's horrible and it is awful. And I believe it bleeds down and it, and it brings about so many other things. The Chicago School District did a study in tw- looking at the 2021-2022 school year. This was not done by Christians. It was done by their school district. And in the 2021-2022 calendar school year, there were 772 instances of teachers attempting to rape, groom, or sexually assault students. 772. So this, this is, again, is a sign that what has come upon this land, I believe judgment. This is what happens. Just read Romans 1 at the end where a culture applauds this stuff. That God has turned those people over to themselves in this reality. And so Jude writes here, they have become for us in this day and age an example. Look what he says there. They serve as an example. 
This word is clear in the Greek here. Aaron, put that up there for us. I think it's there. This, this word here is a powerful word. It means this. It means to lie before the eyes. Like, like sit, sit all the food that you're about to eat, put it on the table so that everybody sitting on the table can see, okay, there's beans, there's salad, there's cornbread. To see everything that's before you, that's what this word means. That they are to serve as an example right before our eyes so that we can see, not doubt about it, but to see clearly what it is, everything that's there, to observe it and look at it and learn from it. You see, for us as Christians, we are to see this as another way today where there's, this is being downplayed in the church today that there are people trying to ignore what was originally written and to ignore the right understanding. And so not only does the word serve mean to just lay something out on the table so you can see exactly what it is, this word example in the Greek means this. Y'all like, anybody like museums? I lo- I'm a museum person. Love museums. You go to a museum and there's displays. I love uh, the times that when we lived in Germany, we went over to Paris. It's about five and a half hours from where we lived. We'd drive over. We'd go to the Louvre. And, and I love the Louvre. I've never still not seen everything in there. But I love to, to see the displays. I love to look at the paintings. I love to look at everything. That's what this word example in the Greek means. It means to put something on display or to exhibit it so that you can look at it and get a clear picture and understanding. Sodom and Gomorrah, for us in 2023, is to serve as a historical and living exhibit as to what will happen to those who practice this kind of lifestyle and for those who affirm it. They are, for believers, a biblical museum to display God's stance on this kind of sin. So why did Jude use it as an example? What do you think was going on in and around the church that Jude's writing to? This was going on. The Roman culture was incredibly decadent. Most of the Caesars were pedophiles. I don't know if you knew that or not, but they would rape boys. That's what they did. They were awful. History has recorded this for us. And Jude is wanting to say, there is a danger to this. And God has put these two cities on display like a museum displays ancient things to say this, do not go down this path. Don't go this way. And I tell you, may Jesus truly aid us in our stance for biblical truth. Because I don't know, I don't know what the days ahead hold, but I know who holds the days ahead and my trust is going to rest with them. Because this may fall apart more. But he is not. He is not going to change. And he will be the rock that he is for forever. So listen to what Jude says there. We are to look at Sodom and Gomorrah every time we hear those words. To see them like when we go to a museum. To see what's put on display right before our eyes of what God does to those who practice this. Lastly, Jude says... And they will undergo a punishment of eternal fire. There will be a crushing punishment upon this apostasy. This word undergoing means to put through, to hold under, to undergo. It's tense, it's present. So that means this, that this continual judgment of God to the inhabitants of these four cities that did not survive this is continuing today. The word punishment is a Greek word that means God has made a judicial decision from the throne room, from his seat, and given a sentence of condemnation. It's a word affirming that God is going to punish this kind of sin and a word that communicates as a punishment that's deserved. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 107, 33, that he turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land in a salty waste, because of the evil of its inhabitants. So that will undergo, Sodom and Gomorrah um, went under a punishment. God made a judicial decision, and the punishment is going to be one of eternal fire. The word eternal is a word that means everlasting. It's a suffering and punishment that had a beginning, but it would not ever have an end. Now, as we finish up, listen to these 
few more things here. The destruction of these two cities is a clear message that God is not going to allow evil to reign, that God will deal with it. Today, religious apostates are promoting so-called homosexual marriage and civil unions. There are homosexual ministers in some denominations. There are elders and deacons, etc., who affirm this lifestyle and live it. And those in these are these kind of relationships are being allowed more and more to join churches and participate with no conversation, conversations ever about leaving this. And I'll be honest with you about our history of our church here. We have had um, same-sex couples visit our church before. And as I got to speak with them and talk with them on the phone during the week or out in the foyer, um, they would come out and they would say it. And I would tell them always, God commands us to love people because God is love. And so you're welcome to come here, but you just need to know this. This is who we are as a church. We're going to love you enough to ask you to walk away from this lifestyle. Because if we don't, then we wouldn't love you. And nobody has ever stood around and nobody's ever walked away from it. But, but I, I want to make clear this morning, anybody can come here and attend. But I also want to remind everybody that in the church, there are biblical standards that we will not compromise on. We won't. We can't. And God's going to bring judgment. So God's word does not encourage the pursuit of sexual immorality, but it condemns the practice of embracing sex in any way that is outside of his instruction. Some takeaways. I'll put these on the internal page. If you're not a part of the internal page, you have to request it. You've got to find it and request it. And, um, Mark and I will approve you to do that, but I'll put these on there, and I'm going to briefly run through these things. Homosexuality. Hear this, church. Homosexuality is... It's prohibited in the Old Testament and it's called sin and there are multiple, multiple verses about that. When you come to the New Testament, it's called sin and there are multiple verses about it. So that's a takeaway. The scripture is just clear. Jude is clear. Genesis 19 is clear. Paul is clear. Here's a third takeaway today. Those who, according to Romans 1, 18 through 32, it speaks about that God turns people over in their sexual sin to themselves and they indulge in this kind of practice, not just heterosexual but also homosexual kind of sin, says this, that they are already living under the judgment of God. And if you go down to the very end of Romans chapter 1 when he talks about and those who applaud or approve this kind of thing, they are living under the judgment of God. A fourth thing I just want to point out, and this is kind of where we are today, there is a danger that comes when God turns you over to yourself. We make poor gods. In Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28, speaks about that. A fifth takeaway today from Jude 7 is this. Is that what I just said? The danger of applauding and approving abominations. This is not just a New Testament idea. Isaiah in verse 3, verse 9 says, The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Fifth takeaway this, this, this morning, and this is important to remember, is that God has set certain standards in regard to the sexuality that God has given to everybody in the room today. God has given this gift that is only to be used in marriage. 
between a man and a woman. Let me clarify that. And so that's why you have sexually transmitted diseases. Why? Because God has clearly defined that there is a, a way to do this. And if you'll do this God's way, there's a security, there's a freedom, there's a joy, there's an enjoyment, there's a pleasure, there's the blessing of God when we do things His way in every area and also in this area. And so that's why Paul writes to the Corinthian church that had so many sexual issues. And so he says to them, he says to them, 1 Corinthians 16, 18, 6, 8, 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So let your body glorify God in that reality. So there is a breakdown that happens that's different than any other kind of sin that's out there. That when there's sexual sin, there is sinning against your own body. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, just by way of speaking about culture, you don't hear the word monkeypox anymore. So I did a little bit more thing. Um, it was primarily within the homosexual community. And then all of a sudden you had children showing up with it. And I think one of the reasons we're not hearing about it quite as much is because the children were getting it because they were being sexually abused. And you can read some of that stuff. I've done a little bit of research and there were some places where that was the case. So sexual sin is devastating because it's a sin against the body. A sixth takeaway today is just this, is that there is a judgment that is worse than Sodom. Jesus said this himself in Matthew eleven twenty four. 24, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Pretty big judgment about Sodom. And yet there's going to be a greater judgment that's connected to those who reject Jesus. Lastly, there will be a great escalation of sexual immorality before the return of Jesus. That's Luke 17, 26 through 35. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the sun in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And on that day... Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left, and there will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Last takeaway is this. We, as his people, his redeemed people, must get the mind of Christ on every cultural issue that is around. We must know the mind of Jesus. There is only one way to know the mind of Jesus, and that is to know the word. For it reveals to us the mind of Jesus. And so here's where we live. We live in a day that affirms what was in the streets of Sodom. It is in the church today. It breaks my heart today that there were homosexual, they're not pastors, I don't know what you call them, that preach today in buildings from the Bible. And there were people who sat in there and didn't stand up and say, What are we doing? And it must be the case for us that we know the mind of Christ.
Because in the church and culturally, this is the difficulty that we have. It is difficult to communicate truth to this culture where they hear with their eyes. This culture hears with its eyes. And it thinks with its feelings. And it is incredibly difficult to speak to the truth and to have a conversation about it when people are this way. This culture hears with its eyes and gives approval and thinks with its feelings. I want to close with just a thought of hope because there is. Everybody smile. There's hope. King Jesus is on the throne right now. He's still the sovereign Lord and he is letting the world run its course to get to the place. And so until that day comes, what do we do? What do we do? Well, we will stand on his word. That's what we'll do. That's what we're going to do. It's the only way to navigate all this. Let's pray.